Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and together righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey, dripping from a honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them, there is an abundant reward. Who perceives his unintentional sins, cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you, Terry. So what holiday are we celebrating next Monday? Come on, you can say it. Halloween, that's, that's our cultural holiday, right? Now, if you were really righteous, if you were really holy, you would have said Reformation Day. Anybody know that? Did anybody know? October 31st, uh, if, if you're in a corner of the church that's like Halloween is evil and bad. Now, I'm not a huge Halloween fan. I don't love all the trappings around it, but I do love the community aspect of it. So we, we do participate in Halloween as a community cultural thing. Uh, but really, uh, October 31st, one of the greatest things to celebrate is Reformation Day. 505 years ago, on October 31st, 1517, this monk, this German monk named Martin Luther, went to the castle door in a town called Wittenberg in Germany, and he nailed a document to that door. Now, in our day and age, we think that's weird, right? You you imagine, like, Martin Luther's, like, stomping up to the castle door, and he's, like, banging the thing in, and there's, like, nothing else on the door, and it would stand out. But that's not how it worked. The castle door was, like, the community bulletin board for Wittenberg. And so if you had something you wanted the community to know, you would put a notice up on the castle door. Hey, I'm going to rent out Johan to go mow the lawn. So, you know, you put that up on the castle door and they can, you know, your neighbor can pay your son to go mow his lawn. Uh, or, hey, there's a, there's a town hall meeting coming up on, you know, Friday, October 7th or whatever. Um, whatever you wanted the community to know, you would put up on the castle door. It was the community bulletin board. So when Martin Luther was a monk serving, of course, in the Roman Catholic Church, he was studying the scripture, and he began to be convicted about some of the things that the Catholic Church was doing, about some of the practices that were ready, that were, that were regularly done uh, in the church. Now, you, you got to know, Martin Luther was not the first guy to have a problem with these things. He was not the first one to bring attention to it. Martin Luther just had powerful friends. So Martin Luther was backed by one of the princes of Germany, and he had political clout behind him. So when Martin Luther, the monk, jumps up and puts these 95 theses, we say, the 95 problems he has with the practices of the church, when he nails them to the castle door in Wittenberg, he's got power behind him. And this sparks what we now know as the Protestant Reformation. Now, the Protestant Reformation was a mixed bag. It wasn't all good. 
I know as Protestants, I'm not allowed to say that. I'm not supposed to say that, right? It's supposed to be nothing but our glorious history. But here's the fact. It was not all good. The Protestant Reformation came with wars, came with persecution, came with oppression, came with division within the church. One thing we can say for our Catholic brothers and sisters is that they know what unity in the church is. You ask five different Catholics about their faith, and you'll get five different answers, but they're all unified under the one banner of the one church. You'll find a hyper-charismatic Catholic, and you'll find an almost Reformed Calvin Catholic, and you'll find an almost Arminian Catholic, and they're all united under one church. So regardless of your thoughts on the Roman Catholic Church, they know what unity is. The Protestant Reformation destroyed that, and so we ended up with all these different groups. But one beautiful thing that came out of the Protestant Reformation, one of the absolute hallmarks of the Reformation that was a beautiful, beautiful thing for the church was something called the Five Solas. These are the bedrock of what it means to be a Protestant Christian. It means that we believe in the five solas. Anybody ever heard of these before? If you've been in the Reformed Church for any amount of time, you might have heard these. The five solas are, these are all Latin terms, okay, but you may be able to figure out what they are, right? Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Sola Christus, Soli Deo Gloria. And what these mean are Scripture alone, Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And these are the five solas of the Protestant Reformation that are the foundation of Protestant Christian theology. We hold to these five. We believe that the Scripture is our only authority in matters of faith and practice. We believe that we are saved only by faith in Christ through the grace of of God delivered us through Christ alone, all to the glory of God alone, not for us. These were the hallmarks of the Protestant Reformation. And so during this series, we're focusing in on that first sola, the sola scriptura. That scripture alone is our only rule for faith and practice. And it alone is the way that we know God truly and fully, because only it fully reveals to us who our God is. And that's why we turn to Psalm 19 today. The, the doctrine we're talking about today is the sufficiency of Scripture. Anybody ever heard of that one? You might have heard of infallibility. You might have heard of inerrancy. The, the doctrine that undergirds all those is what's called the sufficiency of Scripture. This is a very old doctrine. It's written out in all of our creeds. You won't find inerrancy in the creeds, but you'll find sufficiency of Scripture in the creeds. And so that's why we're doing this today. We're, we're looking at the sufficiency of Scripture because we come to the Bible, and some people come to the Bible, if you're from a certain tradition, with the idea that the Bible is really all you need, that it's it, that if the Scripture doesn't speak to it, it's not important, and that we don't really need to study or look at anything else but the Bible. They're wrong, and we'll see that in Psalm 19 right here. Others come and they say, the scripture is a really great historical witness to what people once believed, but it shouldn't necessarily be our guide today because our world is so different from the world of the scriptures. They're wrong too. I love all of these people. But we have a doctrine of the scripture that tells us scripture is not the only authority in the world, but it is the only authority for knowing God and how to pursue him, and how to go after God. And so that's what we see here in Psalm 19. 
Terry picked up at verse 7, but we got to go back up a little bit to the first six verses of Psalm 19. Traditionally, historically, Christian theologians have talked about the two books of Revelation, not the Revelation at the end of the Bible, okay? We talked about that last year. It's a weird book. Revelation means the revealing, the revealing of God. And when we talk about God's revelation or God's self-revelation, what we're talking about is what God has revealed to us about God's self. And theologians typically talk about two books of revelation. One is what's called general revelation, which is what we can learn of God from nature, from the world that exists. God has put something of himself into everything that exists, into the created order. And by observing the created order, we can know some things about God. This is called general revelation. This is what the Apostle Paul refers to in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, when he says, What can be known of God was evident to them by looking at creation. He's talking about human beings and people throughout history who had no excuse for not knowing something about God because something of God is available to us in the created world. There's one more statement that came out of the Protestant Reformation. All truth is God's truth. If something is true, it's true because God has made it so. And so we can learn things about God simply from observing the world around us. We can know that there is a creator. We can see something of his nature. The problem is that we can't discern everything. You can't look at the trees in the forest and know Jesus died for you. That doesn't work, right? You can't simply look at the ocean and conclude that God is a gracious, wonderful, adopting father. You look at the ocean and you think God is a menace, like God is a judgmental, harsh In fact, the ancient peoples who lived around the people of God at this time, the ancient peoples who looked out at the Mediterranean Sea, they, when they looked at the sea, they came up with the idea of a God who was harsh and cruel because the sea is a place that swallows people up. It's the place of mystery. It's the place of chaos. This is why back in Genesis 1-1, we read that the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters because to ancient peoples, the sea was the place of chaos and disorder and of judgment that swallows you up. And so we can look at the created order and we can know some things about God, but we can't know everything about God. You can look at the ocean and know God is great and powerful because he made this thing, but you can't get to God's mercy and grace through the ocean. You can't get to the cross through the trees of the forest. You can't get to God's character through observing the mountains. So we get a sense of God's power and his creative authority, but we don't get a sense of God's real character. And that's why we need something called special revelation. We've got general revelation in nature. Now we have special revelation, which is what God has actually said to us. The things that God has revealed about God's self to us through the words that he's spoken. And that's where we come to the scriptures. That's where we come to the Bible. And that's what Terry read for us here in Psalm 19. The psalmist begins with the praise of general revelation of the nature of God who created the world and says, the skies speak of God, the sun speaks of God as it moves across the sky. And then he moves on in verse 7 to begin to talk about the scriptures, the word that God has given us. And he says, the instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. And all of these scriptures, 7 through 11, they're just like, a descriptor of scripture, and then it tells how it benefits people. So let's go through these one by one. One, 
the instruction of the Lord is perfect. Renewing one's life. Through the Bible, through Scripture, through God's words, we find renewal of life because his word is perfect. Now, that word perfect is tricky. It doesn't always, we have different, it has different meanings. We have different ideas of what we think when we hear the word perfect. One, one meaning of the word perfect here is that it's complete. There's nothing that can be added or taken away from God's word for us to know God. This is what we talk about when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. It is sufficient to know God. And because his word is complete, we don't have to add to it. We don't have to take away from it to know God and to know who God is. And as we get to know the God who is revealed in Scripture, our life is renewed. The only path to renewal of life is through the words that God has spoken. Then he goes on, the testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. Elsewhere, a psalmist will say, and then in the, in the book of uh, Proverbs, the, the, the teacher of Proverbs will also say that in God's word is wisdom, that God's word is the path to wisdom. And so here the psalmist David is saying, the testimony of the Lord is trustworthy. I can trust God's word. I can trust the scripture. And in it, I will find wisdom for my daily life. I will find wisdom to live in this sinful, broken world. He goes on, the precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. I find gladness in the scripture. Other translations will say joy. I find joy in God's word. The command of the Lord is radiant making the eyes light up. Through the scripture, I can see clearly the world as it is, as God made it and intended it, and the world as it is fallen, and the world hopefully as God is going to remake it one day. Then he goes on, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. Now, in this case, he's not talking about fear like we think of, of being afraid. He's talking fear as in reverence. And so he's going back to the scripture, and he's calling the word of God a reverent word. This is a reverent, fearful word of God, and it is pure. It is right. It is holy. It is good. There is no fault in it, and it endures forever. Just as Jesus said last week when we were talking about Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus said, not until all things are done will any of the scripture pass away. Not until the end, but the word of the Lord will remain forever. Ever. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. Now, there are two, can, there are two meanings to this word righteous here. Righteous as in like moral purity and holiness, like moral rightness and uprightness, and also justice, public, social justice. What he's saying here is that the word of the Lord, the ordinance of God are reliable. The things that he's taught us, we can rely on. The things that he's told us to do, how he's shown us to live, we can rely on that. We can bet on that. We can take it to the bank. And they're altogether righteous. They're good. They lead us into moral purity and into paths of justice for our community, for one another. They are more desirable than gold than an abundance of pure gold and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. Have you ever held your Bible and thought, man, this is more valuable than a brick of gold? I think most of us, if we were holding a Bible in our hand and someone came and offered us a gold brick, we would exchange it 
quickly because we find our security in the gold. We find our security in the money, in the tangible things of the world. We find our security in our provision. We find our security in the tangible things of the world. And here, David, the psalmist, is saying, I would trade everything in this world for your word. I would train every trade tangible thing, every ounce of security I can find in my ability to provide, every ounce of security and identity that I can find in the food that I eat and in the sweetest, choicest things of the world. I would trade it all for your word. Think on that. When was the last time you hungered for this? When was the last time you felt deep in your soul, deep in your gut, I need God's word. I need it. I can't breathe without it. I can't make it without it. My soul is famished apart from God's word. Apart from the words of God given to me that point me to my Redeemer, point me to my good and beautiful God, point me to the one who shows me who I am, point me to the one who tells me exactly who I am, who provides for me in ways that I can't quantify. When was the last time you yearned for God's word, like for honey? And for gold. Can I be really honest with you? Can I be really straight with you? I don't feel that hunger very often. I live for this book. I live for the God that it reveals. I live for my Lord Jesus. I long to be dedicated to Him in everything that I do. And yet I can honestly say so many days of my life like this past week during fall break when I was dadding all the time and my kids were taking all my attention and I didn't hunger for God's word and I let myself forget my need and I long for the Holy Spirit to implant within me that deep longing and desire to know the scriptures to see the God that they reveal, to know my Lord Jesus, to long for Him above everything else, to lead my family into relationship with Him, to lead this church into relationship with Him, so that the name of Jesus would be on my lips all the time, so that you can't know me without knowing my King. I want God's word to be so precious, so ingrained in me, so much a part of my being that you can't really know who Brandon is apart from knowing the scripture, apart from knowing the God to whom they point. I want this word, I want the God that I love, I want Jesus Christ, I want the Holy Spirit to be so integrated and a part of me that you can't know me apart from knowing them, just like you can't know me without knowing about my wife and my children and my family and my work. What if that was our central identity? What if that was the core of who we are? 
I am first and foremost a child of God, a brother or sister to Jesus. I am one who has been claimed by the Holy Spirit. I am one who is empowered by God. I am one who is beloved and precious to my God and my King and my Master. That is who I am, and you need to know that to know me. That's what the Scriptures do for us. Anchor us in who Jesus is and who He calls us. They anchor us in the, in the character and the quality of our good and beautiful God. That's why we hunger for them. That's why they're more valuable than gold or honey. And that's why those weeks when I do not hunger for them and I don't yearn for them like honey and gold, I need my eyes to be turned back to Jesus. And I think that's what the David, the writer here, is getting at when these last verses. He goes through this thing, and we've talked before how so many of our pronouncements of devotion to God are really just ambition. <laughs> like, they're, they're really like, I, I, don't, I don't actually feel this way most of the time, but I'm going to sing these words and I'm going to say these things because they, they work within me to develop within me a hunger. They're, so they're aspirational. I think David knows this, and so he comes to verse 12, and he says, Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David takes a look at the scripture and he writes so highly of it. And he says, these are beautiful I want to root myself in God's word. And I think David is holding up that mirror to himself and realizing all that stuff I just said is not who I really am all the time. All that stuff I just said, as true as I want it to be, I don't always believe it. And so I don't always act on it. And so he rounds it out with confession. He rounds it out by confessing his own sin. Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. David is saying, when I look at your word, I know there's stuff in me that I don't even see. So many of us are in denial about even our most obvious sins that we ain't even near yet. We ain't even got to the point where we're like, there's stuff in me I don't even know about. So many of us are blind to the things that everybody else sees. I want to get to the place where I'm like, God, would you cleanse me of all that stuff I don't even, I'm not even aware of? Jesus, work that out of me. Come on. Cleanse me. Renew me. God, would you, would you shine light through your word into those dark corners of my heart that I don't even know are there? Because only your light can dispel this darkness in me. When I look at the word of God, I'm moved to confession. Because I realize how far short I fall. And then David goes on. Okay, so cleanse me of all that stuff I don't even know about. By the way, all that stuff that I do, would you get rid of that too? Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Don't let them rule over me. God, would you stay my hand? Would you hold me back? Through the power of your word and your spirit, would, would you stop me before I do that thing I know I shouldn't be doing? 
We all step up to the, the edge of that cliff. And if you've been following Jesus, if you've got the Holy Spirit living within you, if you've got him working on your conscience, you step up to the edge of that cliff and you know, one more step and I'm in. One more step and I've done that thing I don't want to do. And we do it. We step in. We step over. We know that what we're doing is sin. We know it. And yet something within us is powerless to stop it. And this is where David is saying, through your word, Lord God, through the revelation that I've received of you through the scripture, would you hold me? Stop me. Hold back my hand from that sinful act. Lord, would you even stop the thought of it before it comes to me? Cleanse my inmost being. Cleanse me from blatant rebellion. Now, here's, here's, the, here's the good side of this, right? This gets real negative. This gets real dark real quick. But here's the beautiful side of this. The fact that David is confessing this and asking for forgiveness means there's forgiveness for it. It means that when we willfully and intentionally do the thing that we know God is not calling us to do, when we willfully and intentionally know that we're doing the wrong thing, there is still forgiveness. There is still cleansing. You are still loved. It's not just the stuff in your past that Jesus has dealt with. It's everything to come. When we knowingly step over that line, God's forgiveness and love are still there, calling us back. And so David finishes with this great ambition that I think should, should honestly be the heart cry of every follower of Jesus. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I, I hope, and this is, this is aspirational too, but I hope that my greatest ambition in life is simply to make God happy. To do the things that please God. To do the things that Make God happy. Now I know he's going to love me no matter what. And I know he's going to be proud of me no matter what. Just like your parents would. And yet you are a parent. You know you're going to love your kid no matter what. You're going to care for them no matter what. You're going to forgive them no matter what. You're going to embrace them no matter what. But man, when they do the thing you've been working on, when they finally do that thing that you've been trying to get them to do for weeks and for months, when they finally follow your instruction when they finally begin to walk in something like wisdom, when you can see that what you've been doing as a parent with them comes through and it's finally sinking into their heart, you know the delight of that moment, right? Some of y'all got little babies. You'll get there. <laughs> but as a parent, you know, when you finally see your kid flourishing and, and walking in wisdom and doing the things that you've been training them up and trying to teach them to do and you see them doing well, the kind of delight that wells up in your heart. It goes above and beyond the base pride and love and care that you'll always have for them. And I want God to feel that way about me all the time. I want to be a delight to my Father. I want to be a delight to my God. I just want to live my life so that God is happy and pleased. That's what it means to glorify God with our lives. And then, 
when I know I've done the wrong thing, when I know I've stepped away, I can come to him and say, God, would you cleanse me? Would you forgive me? Would you reseat me in the center of your love that I've walked away from? And I know I can do that because of Jesus. I know that when I have walked away, when I have failed to walk in God's precepts, when I have failed to walk in wisdom, when I've failed to do the thing that I know delights the heart of my loving God and Father, I know that in that moment there is a cross and an empty tomb and there is a king on a throne who is ready to embrace me and to look to his Father and say, look at these nail scars. Would you look at what I have done for my brother, for your son, for your beloved child? I know that every single moment I step off that path and away from wisdom and every single moment my heart does not delight in this word and every single moment that I'm not following in the way of Jesus, delighting my Father, my Lord Jesus is there at the right hand of God saying, pleading on my behalf and saying, here, behold your beloved child, behold my brother, behold the one for whom I died and whose sin I have paid for and covered. Would you look at Brandon and see me, God? Would you look at Grant and see me, Jesus says? Would you look at your wayward child and in their place see my righteousness as they grow into my likeness? We have an advocate with God the Father, always there pleading on our behalf, giving us his righteousness instead of our own. And so we come to the scripture and we know it is sufficient because we know our King Jesus is sufficient. We come to the Bible, we come to the word of God and we know that it is sufficient because it reveals to us Jesus, the Christ God in the flesh, the one who intercedes on our behalf, who has risen again ahead of us and who now reigns over his people forever. And the one who sits at the right hand of God and says, Father, would you see me? I've taken their sin. Reseat them in your love. Reseat them in who they are in you. This is why we come to the scripture. Above all things, not for the rules of God, not even for how practical it is, because honestly, it isn't always. We don't come for tips for living or the 10 rules for leading a happy life or the seven rules that'll lead you to prosperity or whatever other silly list of things you want to come up with. We come to the scripture to see Jesus. We come to the scripture to be pointed to Jesus and to be rooted and seated in his love for us so that we can become like him and be a delight to our Father in heaven. That's why we hunger for the word. That's why we long for it. And that's why we invest our lives in knowing the scriptures. God, thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you that you've spoken to us through it. 
Thank you, God, that you came to us as your word made flesh. That you've taught us all that we need to know. That you've given us the full revelation of your character in Jesus Christ. And thank you, Jesus, that now you sit at the right hand of the God and you of God the Father and you intercede for us. God, thank you that no matter how wayward we are, we are still in your love. Thank you, Lord, that no matter how many sins pile up, God, Jesus, you have paid it all, past, present, and future. Thank you that you call us your own. And thank you that you came to us before we could love you. You've poured out your love upon us. Would you give us a deep, deep hunger and desire for your word, God? To lead us to our King Jesus? To transform us, Holy Spirit, through the power of the word to be like Jesus in every aspect of our lives? Would you take all these aspirational things we say about what we believe and what we want and who we want to be, and would you make them a reality in us as we're conformed to the image of Jesus? God, give us a longing and a hunger for your word. In the name of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.